Lord God, we come and during this Christmas time, we celebrate the fact that God has come. You have come unto us, the second person of the Godhead, the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, wrapped himself in flesh. Lord, came to our earth, came to our world, and he lived a sinless life, ultimately to die upon the cross. He was buried, but yet he rose again on the third day, proving that he was exactly who he said he was. He was God the Son, come to earth to save the earth from its sin. Lord, and we, during this time, during this Christmas season, we celebrate what a magnificent salvation, what a magnificent story of redemption it is that you would send your son. In his name we pray, amen, amen. Before we get into the specific Christmas sermons over the next couple of weeks here, I wanted to finish today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. A wonderful picture again as last week was pursue the good, pursue the good as we think about our individual responsibility in the midst of a local church body and family to not only pursue the good as we saw in the midst of that section last week, but also today to hold fast to what is good, hold fast to what is good. So, you know, when somebody goes on a diet, oftentimes they're the person that talks about the diet all the time, right? And I said, I was not going to be the person that talked about the diet all the time, but I have been the person that talks about the diet all the time. I'm driving my family crazy. I said, okay, I'm not going to do it. I think it's probably a bit of an overstatement, but enough of driving my family crazy because I'm talking about it and I'm just craving certain food. I'm not even doing much of a crazy diet, but it's enough for a guy who's just pretty much eating whatever he's wanted for his whole life to now, okay, I've got to actually start watching what I eat. I was over at my parents' house on Thanksgiving, and we don't have a scale in our house. We just never had, right? And so my parents had a scale, and so it's, it's almost like when you're kids, it's, kind of, you're, it's fun to step on a scale, right, and see what it is. And it's kind of been that way for me. You step on, you're just kind of curious. It was not fun this time. <laughs> I stepped on that scale, and I think this was prior to the Thanksgiving meal. So I can't even, I can't even blame it on that. And so I said, okay, I've got to start watching what I eat, right? So, you know, you start to diet, everything's good, but what's the hardest part? You know, as we say here from the title of the message today, it's holding fast, it's doing what you should do. And I was doing pretty good on Friday. You know how it is, you're, if you're in a routine of your kind of normal day throughout the week, things are good, you're in a routine, it's easy to do it. But Fridays and the weekends come around, and man, that is hard to do. So I did just fine most of Friday, I ate a pretty good breakfast, pretty good lunch, even a salad for lunch, believe it or not, I ate a salad for lunch, ate a pretty healthy dinner. And I came home that night, and my parents were watching the kids. And what did my parents get? They had pizza over there at the house. They had pizza at the house. Colby, my son, had talked to my parents about getting pizza. Well, the girls didn't want pizza, so my parents ended up basically getting two dinners. And so there was like three-quarters of a pizza left. And when we get home, in between, like Allie going back and forth to do a couple things, getting the kids ready for bed in a matter of two minutes, I ate three pieces of pizza. And she, and she said, how in the world did you do that? I didn't even see you doing it. So we were also watching a movie that night. She fell asleep a little bit early after a long day of, of work. I had two Hostess cupcakes later that night, too. <laughs> so needless to say, I did not hold fast to what is good. So 
But as we were thinking about last week, you know, we talked about our individual responsibility in the midst of a local church to pursue the good, to cultivate the good. And today we're talking about as we wrap up the end of that passage, holding fast to what is good. I'm going to start reading here where we started last week in verse 12 and carry on to the end of verse 22 as we'll get to today. And I urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And then as we looked at specifically last week, be at peace among yourselves. It's all of us have to take the responsibility for cultivating peace in the midst of our church. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Isn't that the hardest thing when we've been hurt? We're human beings. So in the midst of our families, in the midst of our church family, we're human beings. And even though many of us are Christians, we're believers in Jesus Christ, and we've been made new, oftentimes we don't do our part. The God's part is sanctification daily in our life. Our part is consecration, a wonderful old world that simply means word that simply means daily to dedicate ourselves anew to God's work in our life. So we don't often do that. And so what happens? We can hurt each other, right? We sin against one another. <clears throat> and so it's our responsibility when we've sinned towards another to go and ask forgiveness, but it's also our responsibility too to, 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 um, to be patient with all and to receive the forgiveness, to forgive one another. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, verse 15, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. That's where we took last week's title from, pursue. You have to pursue it. You have to go after it. I talked about last week, our, our family, our, not our family dog, our extended family dog, my sister-in-law's dog, that we have to chase all over the neighborhood. This dog, this little dachshund with, with, that's mixed with a men pin, a miniature pincher. And so his legs are a little bit longer than a dachshund, but not so much you think that dog could go all over the place. I mean, we had to chase it through the neighborhood and we had to pursue that dog in the same way we were pursuing that dog with all of our might, lest we be in trouble because we let the dog out. The same thing in the midst of a local church. We can't just hope that uh, good happens in our midst. We must pursue it for yourselves and also for all. The implication there is outside of the local body of Christ. uh, John chapter 17, verse 21, how he says that we prove out the gospel, we bear out the gospel. Jesus is praying before the Father the night before his death, and he says, make them one as you and I, Father, are one, so that the world will know that you sent me. Our unity, our love for one another, proves to the world that Jesus Christ and his gospel is real. So now we get to today, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every part of evil. So very simply today, very simple three-word points that we have today. Cultivate speaks about cultivating the good and cultivating Christ-likeness. The second point is going to be avoid. Avoiding those things that don't reflect Christ. And to fulfill, fulfill our calling not only to Christ's likeness, but to fulfill our calling to pursue and to hold fast the good in the midst of this local body of Christ. So very, very uh, 
very quickly here in verse 16 to start with, we see that it says rejoice always under the first point of cultivate. Very simply, cultivate, rejoice always. This is a deliberate choice. When you look not only at the context of the whole thing, but when we just put it in the context of real life, and when we look at the context of even how the word is written here, it's not just speaking of hoping it happens, but it is a deliberate choice to pursue what is good. You see, joy is not bound by circumstance. You know, if we're kind of delineating a little bit between what the world kind of speaks of and thinks of as just, you know, your kind of -of run-of-the-mill happiness, that sort of happiness seems to be based upon circumstances. It's circumstantial. Whatever's happening at the time is going to determine my level of happiness. But joy, biblical joy, is a deep-seated happiness or joy, as it says, of course, that is rooted in something more than just the wind and the waves of daily circumstances. In fact, when we, uh, when we see joy used in the New Testament, when the New Testament speaks of joy, we often see it in the midst of suffering. Really, you even see that a lot in the book of Psalms as well, that there is this sort of overarching joy or this foundational joy that is there and firm and in place even in the midst of suffering. Look at this quote. We're going to put it on the screen here. When the sorrow or suffering results, when the sorrow of suffering of life results from being identified with Christ, the Holy Spirit creates a supernatural joy, a wellness of soul that cannot be dampened by adverse situations. I love how he writes that there. It cannot be dampened by adverse situations. You're being identified with Christ, that suffering of Christ. And, and that's one of the mysteries of the, of the word of God when we see we suffer with Christ. We think, well, gosh, why would anyone buy into this? Well, we know as Christians, yes, suffering for Christ and difficulty in life isn't something that somehow poof magically goes away. But we know there is something deeply embedded within us that our life has been changed. And we are identified with Christ and it cultivates that sort of joy, deep-seated joy that cannot be shaken by suffering. 2 Corinthians 4.17 reflects this as well. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So the suffering of this life isn't purposeless, but it has the purpose of working out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That when, Especially when we suffer for Christ, we lay up crowns in heaven that we again lay at the very feet of Jesus Christ. He, in fact is our example. Hebrews 12, 3 says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So he says, We have to do nothing but look towards Jesus, whose suffering was far greater than the tribulation or the trial or the difficulty that we might face in life. He suffered. The, the one who knew no sin became sin for us on our behalf, 2 Corinthians five twenty one, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. As he hung upon the cross, yes, this little baby that we celebrate coming at this time, God the Son being wrapped in flesh, ultimately died upon the cross, suffered a horrible physical death. And that was the easy part. The hard part was a heaped upon his shoulders was the sum total of the sin of mankind. And he bore that sin upon the cross. So it says, consider him who endured such hostility. From sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. So when we cultivate, what do we cultivate? We rejoice always. We pray without ceasing, it says in verse 17. 
That's talking, not talking about ma- mantras and chanting of some of those things that we might see in Eastern religions where it's this just kind of working yourself into this ecstatic state of just chanting mantras over and over. I talked about a couple of weeks ago just the spiritual heaviness and the brokenness that we felt when, when we one time when we were in Thailand visited a Buddhist temple and just to see the vigorous nature in which they were praying and, 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 and lighting candles and these sorts of things, hoping that they would conjure up some sort of a God that would hear them. And in that part of the world as well, you have a lot of what's known as animistic religions as well, where they believe a God is in a tree or a rock or there's a God of this hollow or forest or something like that. And they're doing all that they can, working themselves into some sort of a frenzy, hoping that this God will hear them. Well, we can know with certainty as believers in Jesus Christ that the God of the universe, the one who spoke the universe into existence, is not too big and too mighty and too great for us. He hears us and he wants us to come to us. He says he knows the hairs upon our head and he tells us that we can approach his throne with confidence and boldness, not because of ourselves, but because of our intermediary, none other than Jesus Christ. You see, it's not a matter of when we pray without ceasing. It's not a matter of kind of working ourselves daily and at every moment of our life into some sort of ecstatic nature, but it means we are in a simple state of conversation with our Heavenly Father. A simple state of conversation with our Heavenly Father and not just thinking, okay, what do I do in this situation? Our first thought, put it on the screen here, our first thought shouldn't be, what do I do here? When we face one of the many forks in the road of our daily life, We face hundreds of forks in the road of our daily life of decisions and choices. And our question shouldn't be, okay, what what should I do here? Our first thought should be almost a prayer. It should be a thought of prayer. Our first thought should be, God, what is your will? What is your will here? And so in that way, we are in a constant state of conversation with God, praying without ceasing. Not only do we rejoice to pray without ceasing, but in everything, giving thanks very closely related to the idea of joy and that it is not based upon circumstances. It's easy for everyone to give thanks in the midst of favorable circumstances, but we have to be willing to give thanks unto God even when things are difficult. You see, those that, that have cultivated not thanks, thankfulness in their life, but, but a lack of gratitude in their life, those are the ones that are going to fold the tent when things get tough. You see, but if we are living in a constant state of gratitude and thankfulness unto God, even in the midst of tough times, when those tough times come, we will not fold the tent. He says that in everything, giving thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. For these things, all of these things that he's called us to here, of rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and everything giving thanks, it's not just something, again, that we're twisting in the wind trying to do on our own. It's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we even need the grace of God. We even need the undergirding of God. And the Romans eight twenty nine knowledge of the fact that those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of God, the image of Jesus Christ. And so we know all the time God is doing that work of sanctification underneath our life. And so that we know that our job is daily consecration. As I said before, it's daily dedication again and anew to the work of God in your life. You say, say, it's impossible to rejoice in the midst of all things. It's impossible to pray without ceasing. I just, my mind just goes to try to figure it out myself. It's impossible to give thanks in the midst of circumstances. Absolutely, it is not. It is possible. 
Because God is doing the work of sanctification in your life. Your job is to get on board with what he's doing daily through consecration, dedication of your life. Sort of cultivate that Christ-likeness. Again, if we're going to hold fast, if we're going to pursue, like we said last week, hold fast to the good in our lives, and as we're part of this local body of Christ, holding fast and cultivating the good in the midst of our local body, not only are we to cultivate Christ-likeness, but there are certain things that we are to avoid. We're to avoid sin. We're to avoid sin. Verse Verse 19 says this, avoid quenching the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Verse 20 says, do not despise prophecies. Another couple of of direct imperatives, negative imperatives that he tells us in in the first part, do these things. And here he says, do not do these things. Avoid these things. Don't quench the spirit. How do we do that? First of all, for a believer in Jesus Christ, when when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in our life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in fact, says our body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit who is the third person of the Trinity, the one who guides, the one who convicts, the one who begins the work work of regeneration before salvation in our lives. He is the one that is doing that work in our midst, and he continues to walk with us in our life. And and he says, do not quench the work of the Spirit. How do we do that? Maybe by ignoring his work in our life. Maybe by stifling his voice in our life with sin. He's the one that convicts. He's the one that challenges. He's the one that comforts us. Maybe, in fact, we are drowning his influence in our life through immorality, not avoiding sin. So it says, do not quench the Spirit. Here's what, in fact, when we think about the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit is the greatest asset to the Christian's life. As we say here, even more so, you are an asset to his work in the world. See, here's the thing. Oftentimes, I think most of us have realized that have, have, have dug into the Word of God. We've been Christians. We, we get the idea that the Holy Spirit isn't some sort of a force out there. We know that the Holy Spirit is the person, the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit. But oftentimes, we can unfortunately still think of the Holy Spirit as almost some sort of spiritual butler in our life that we can call upon when we need things. And his work, of course, is conviction and guidance and comfort in our lives. But far more than that, it's not as though the Holy Spirit is just there for us to call on. We are so important to God, the work of God, so important to the work of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because we are an asset to his work of the gospel in the world. You know, sometimes we ask ourselves and we think about, I oftentimes think about this, why, God, in your infinite wisdom did you choose such weak and frail human beings to be on the front lines of taking the good news of the gospel. And I think we would all, at times, echo that sort of sentiment in our life. We think, man, I am frail. I am flawed. God, why would you use me? But we see 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 speaks of human beings, those who have been saved, those who have, been, who have given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians. It says that we are like jars of clay that hold this incredible treasure. We have this treasure of the gospel, the good news of redemption through Jesus Christ. We hold this, and we hold this in the midst of this jar of clay, which is our life. So lest we think that when we share the good news, the gospel, lest we think we want to make a breakthrough in the life of someone uh, who goes to work with us, we want to start a spiritual conversation with them, and we think, man, I cannot do this. I am frail, and I am flawed. We have to remember that it's not the power of our own persuasion. It's not the power of our oratory skill. 
It is the power of God of the gospel. Our job is to plant the seed. Our job is to plant the seed. God is doing the work. And the Holy Spirit is working the life of those. So the Holy Spirit is the greatest asset to our life. But more importantly than that, the greater emphasis should be in the fact that we are an asset to his work. We're an asset to his work. The Holy Spirit isn't found in the center of what we're doing. We are found in the very center of what God is doing in the world. So do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. Don't show contempt for the Word of God. Don't show contempt for the Word of God and neglecting the message of the Bible. You see, this is the greatest tool that we've ever been given for living the Christian life and knowing the very will of God. You've seen some of those videos, and maybe if you haven't, I would suggest you go home today. You can easily find some of these on YouTube and different places of where in foreign countries there are believers in Jesus Christ that come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they will get one Bible, or they might get a shipment of Bibles. I remember one in particular where they received a shipment of Bibles in their, in their language, and you could imagine it's, it was like 10 Christmases times 10 rolled into one. When they received a copy of God's Word, they cherished it and they appreciated it. And sometimes I think, you know, they're so readily available in our lives that we forget the power of the Word. But the power of the Word of God, if we are to immerse ourselves in God's Word, not only would it have all the answers for life, but we would draw closer to God and reflect His character. Don't despise those prophecies Don't show contempt for the word and neglecting the very message of the Bible. So we're called to avoid those things, cultivate Christ-likeness, avoid these these things in the midst of a local body, and to fulfill your calling as one who is to hold fast to what is good. First part of, uh, of verse 21 says, test all things, test all things. So when we are living in the midst of the world, even things that we hear in the midst of a local church, we are to test them by that very word that we just spoke about. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, speaks of this great, uh, those great Berean believers. To give you a little background on, on uh, verse 11 here of chapter 17, what's really interesting in the first part of, of chapter 17 of the book of Acts, that Paul actually goes to Thessalonica, the very believers that he's writing to here. And he, of course, as was his practice, he would go to the Jewish synagogues first. And because of the power of God, there were some uh, Jewish uh, Jews that, that came to faith in Jesus Christ and even some of the Greeks. But those Jews who were opposed to the gospel were vehemently opposed to the gospel. But it says a wonderful commentary in the first part of, of the book of Acts here. And I'll actually read it for you before we get to the, the focal passage here. It says, and then the brethren immediately sent Paul, this is verse 10 of Acts chapter 17, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more fair-minded than those who were in Thessalonica and that they received, look at this, they received the word of God with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. You see, these folks had what we would call today, which we would kind of uh, quantify and call a biblical, a Christian biblical worldview, meaning everything that they saw, just as it should be for the Christian, should be filtered through the lens of the Bible. What does God say? What does God say? Because we know this word isn't just kind of a collection of poetry and a collection of pithy sayings and sort of things like this. This is the very words of God unto mankind. 
And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, the only worldview to have, the Christian worldview to have, is the Christian biblical worldview. And so when it comes to some of the things that we will face and some of the many questions, deep and troubling questions that we face as believers who live in the midst of a fallen world, we must always think, what does the Bible say? Because it is synonymous with, what does God say? Is Jesus the only way to heaven? about that question. We receive that quite a bit. We see that quite a bit in the midst of of the world at large. You know, is homosexuality, is that a normal sexual expression? Is sex before marriage okay if you really love the other person? And on and on and on and on, question after question after question. But see, we have to, just as we see with the Berean believers, test all things by the biblical worldview, by the lens of Scripture. Listen to this. Write this down. If you fail to hold strong to the Christian worldview that the Bible is the eternal word of God, you will eventually accept what you once deemed unimaginable. That's the absolute truth. If you fail to hold strong to the Christian worldview that the Bible is the eternal word of God, you will eventually accept what you once deemed unimaginable. You know, if you look back of the history of what's known as Protestant liberalism, like kind of the formal theological term and in mainline Protestant denominations. We see in the latter part of the 19th century, so the 1800s and the early part of the 20th century, the early uh, 1900s, we see that this great drift away from the, from the belief that the Bible was the word of God. And it started out with small things that would show up in the pews, if you will, But over time, it's grown into things that you can imagine some of these early adopters of Protestant liberalism in the mainline Protestant denominations could have never imagined, could have never imagined. I cannot imagine that some of those that were early adopters of this in the late 1800s, early 1900s could have ever imagined getting to the point where we were ordaining homosexual clergy, where we were advocating for on-demand abortion. And where we were saying that really there is no truth in the scripture other than, you know, Jesus was a good person. He existed and he was a good person. But what happens is eventually when you fail to hold strong to the worldview, the Christian worldview, the only Christian worldview, that the Bible is the eternal word of God, you will eventually accept things that you once deemed unimaginable. Because the world in which we live, the waves of the world are always crashing against us always crashing against us. And if we are going to be ones, as God has called us to do, to live in the midst of a fallen world so that we might bring the love of Christ unto them, we must hold fast. It does no good. It does no good to deny what the Bible says. It does no good to to feel shameful about what the Bible says. Because here's the thing, that same prayer in Acts chapter 17, or excuse me, John chapter 17, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, He asks his father, he says, I pray that you do not take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, our response to to the world continuing uh, to to crash in upon biblical values and to crash in upon Christian worldview, first of all, we have to understand they're lost and they're going to act like they're lost. We shouldn't expect anything different from a lost person. But our response to that cannot be that we just kind of stick our head in the sand and we kind of huddle up in our holy huddles and never get out there. 
Some of the things that Paul and his cohorts were dealing in the, in, in the city of Corinth and many of the other places of the first century uh, Greek and Roman world were some of the exact same things that we're dealing with today. But God tells us that we need to be out there. We need to be out there. But we need to be out there as we hold fast to the word of God, as we hold fast to the word of God. Not only are we to test all things, but we are to hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. You see, it's an even more emphatic form of just the word hold to. He says, hold fast to it. Hold on to it. Hold tightly to it. Have you ever gone tubing before out on a boat? I love tubing in the summer. But you know, if you've ever done this where you ride on a tube behind a boat and you have to hold fast to it or that thing is going to sling you right off. It's a lot of fun, but the, the key is to holding fast to what you do and you shift your weight. In the same way, we are to have to hold fast to what is good. Philippians 4.8 tells us this, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, what does he say? He says, meditate on these things. Meditate on these things. Now, meditation, unlike Eastern meditation, Eastern meditation speaks of emptying the mind. We're finding our center. We're emptying our mind. That's not biblical meditation at all. When we see biblical meditation, especially in the midst of the Old Testament, where you see great passages on this, it's the idea of filling our mind with something and not filling our mind with just anything. It's filling our mind with the eternal word of God. And he says, in fact, here, if any of these things, whatever it may be that is praiseworthy, that is good, reject those things that push the good out of your life, reject those things, whatever, whether it be a TV show, movie, a way of life, whatever it may be that are pushing the good out, don't allow those things to push the good out, but meditate on those things that are good. Why? We have to hold fast because walking in the midst of the world, and unfortunately, even in the midst of a local church body like this, Because again, even as believers in Jesus Christ, as many of us are, we're sinners, saved by grace, redeemed with the new nature. But the old nature, if we're not putting it to death every day, hangs around. And so oftentimes living in the midst of the world and even living in the midst of any circle of humanity is like walking on a slanted slope. You're trying to walk uphill and one false step, one false step can cause you to slide. So he says, hold fast to what is good. Don't just kind of float through life hoping that things are going to turn out okay. Hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to the word of God and abstain from every form of evil. So it's really interesting through this passage, we see, cult, we see the section that we deemed cultivating. Then we see a section on avoid these things. Then we see another sort of positive imperative passage, not positive in the fact that this is nice and the other's not, but positive in the fact that he's telling you to do this as opposed to avoid this. So we saw that in the last section of verses 21 and 22, the first part of 22. But right there at the end, he gives you one more negative imperative, one more avoid this. And he says, he tells us again, abstain from every form of evil. Don't try to justify sin in your life. We've talked about this before, and we talked about it even last week. This local body of Christ should be a place. We should we should be developing those 2 a.m. friends. We should be developing those relationships in which we know we can come without fear of retribution to someone that we know and say, I am struggling with this. Will you please help me? Will you pray for me? Will you hold me accountable? We live in the midst of a world which it's difficult to live for Christ. 
And sometimes, even in the midst of a local church, it can be difficult to do that because we are in the midst of human beings. Many saved human beings, but human beings nonetheless. When we are to abstain from evil, let us come to those that we know. Let us come to our church family and let us say, I am struggling. Would you come? Would you help me? See, here's the thing. When we think about holding fast to what is good in the midst of this local body of Christ, as we see here, Paul's admonition to the church at Thessalonica, we think about it's a great reflection to a church just like ours. Because here's the thing. We need you and we need one another to cultivate Christ's likeness, to avoid, avoid those things that don't reflect the character of Christ, and to fulfill our calling to hold fast to what is good so that we too not only can cultivate growth into Christ's likeness in our own lives, be there for, the, for one another in the midst of sin, be there for one another in the midst of brokenness and hurt and pain in our life, but also so that when we go out beyond these walls, we might win the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we think about holding fast to what is good. We think the greatest of all good that we've seen in our world is demonstrated by none other than you, of course, sending your son, Jesus Christ, into this world. We thank, and when we think about our failings, even when we think about our failings after giving our lives to Christ, and we know that you have saved us from all sin, past, present, and future, the thought's got to be that we're not worthy of that. But Lord, that's why we see in the midst of our world so often, we, when we talk to someone about what it takes to go to heaven, the first thought for someone that doesn't know Christ is, well, I've got to do something. I've got to be good for it. But Lord, we know there's nothing at all. There's no amount of good that we can do to save ourselves. But Lord, it's only through your grace, through Jesus Christ. God, I pray here in just a few moments as we go to this time of response that, Lord, you would speak into the heart of someone that's here today as you've been doing for quite some time. Someone that's here that may not know Christ as their Savior. And would this be the time that they would respond to that goodness that you've extended unto them through the person of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We do now.